0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Washington wins some and loses some in its global game of regime change. Chicago has become the national hub of the movement for community control of the police. And activists gear up to mark the 38th year of imprisonment for Mumia Abu-Jamal.
0: But first, nationwide opposition to the government has paralyzed Haiti for months. But the Jovenel Moïse regime has refused to step down. Daoud André of the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti says the regime has resorted to importing mercenaries to assassinate protest leaders.
2: Definitely. You know, they were different nationalities, but five of them were U.S. citizens who, in February, were brought to Haiti with a bunch of guns, you know, weapons of war, The government said they knew nothing about it, although it was someone very close to the president, a high person in the government there, who acknowledged that he took them out of the airport without them having to go through customs with their weapons, you understand? Same thing again with these past protests that have been happening for some months now. You have... Right now, a group, another group, they say it's a dozen, but no one knows how many they are, of white mercenaries, American mercenaries, with weapons, traveling with Jovenel Moïse wherever he goes, in his motorcade, and the, you know the time that he had to go to... The National Museum at 5 a.m. in the morning, these guys, they were all over, all around there patrolling. And you're not going to believe this, but they actually working for Eric Prince. This is Blackwater, which has a new name now. It's Mercury. So this is the people that are there. But our people believe that it's not just these guys that are obviously, you know, carrying weapons, to protect Jovenel Moïse that are on the ground in Haiti, but we believe that there are other mercenaries, white and some blacks as well, who are in Haiti doing the work of destabilizing, attacking demonstrators. Because in these demonstrations that are happening just about every day, you have people that are shot in the streets and no one can really see Who is the person who shot at them? So people in the streets believe that Jovenel Moïse does have snipers, mercenaries, you know, attacking leaders in demonstrations, specific people that they want out of commission.
1: Hundreds of thousands of Haitians are involved in this, possibly millions. But is there a unity around a set of demands?
2: Well, the only one demand, I mean, the clear demand, is that Jovenel Moïse must go. Everybody from like a little child, four years old, if you ask them, they will say, you know, Jovenel must go. To, you know, the oldest person you'll find in the country will tell you the same thing. But also what has joined in the demand that Jovenel goes is a change in the system. When people are saying a change in the system, they mean the corruption. They mean the reality, to use the words of Donald Trump again, the sole reality that our country has been put into. And Komokoda, I'm a part of Komokoda, the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti. And every week, you know, Thursdays, 3 to 6 p.m., we protest in front of The Haitian consulate in New York. And one of the signs that we carry with us is that we clearly say Haiti is a shithole because the crooks in power are puppets of the United States. And it's been turned into a shithole by France and the United States. Now, people have to understand that this is a country from the creation of our country in 1804, it's been embargoed by the slave powers. To today, that reality has not changed, where the same slave powers who are now, you know, what you call them, permanent members of the UN Security Council, those with nuclear weapons, those with guns, who still see... Haiti as the threat that their ancestors saw it to be in 1804. And they continue to penalize, to punish the Haitian people for having risen up. And they have the same conviction that Haiti is not to be an example of prosperity, of well-being for people who chose another path other than, you know, what these powers had determined to be the only way. So today, the fight that is in the streets, be it like around corruption, be it like around U.S. tutelage, be it around a president that people are identifying as a liar, as a thief, you know, because the movement to get justice in the more than $2 billion of missing Petro Caribe money, Jovenel Moïse... Michel Martelly, the THTK, this whole crew of U.S. cronies, they are at the heart of it. And the, this is what everything is revolving around. But people are saying we don't just want a change in the face that is there as leader of our country, but we want as leader of our country someone we choose and someone who is working on behalf of our people.
1: When the Haitians heard about developments in Bolivia where the organization of American States seemed to play a key role in that coup, they I'm sure had a taste of a bitter taste of deja vu. Of course, you know the OAS, I think it was
2: Fidel who called it the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the United States of America. You know, the OS is a sham organization. You know, it's a shame that so many of our countries in the Americas continue to be a part of this sham organization, where basically it's the United States, you know, that runs it. You know, of course, with the help of Canada in, in Haiti, this is what they've always done. You know, when President Aristide was reelected. The second time he became president, the election of 2000, it was the same thing. It was the OAS that the U.S. government used to discredit the election. And even when President Aristide had agreed to remove basically all of these legislators, Lavalas, Famille Lavalas, legislators that they said had not been elected properly, they still went after him, and they still did another coup. And that was interesting because that time in, in 2004, U.S. Special Forces soldiers had to come in and personally take President Aristide out of the country. That was for all to see, you know? Again, in 2010, when this election happened, and Michel Barteli, the U.S. picked candidate was very far from being even close. But again, the United States used the Organization of American States to say that the election was not good. And when President Prezal at the time said, "Okay, well, if it's not good, let's have another election. And they were like, no, we're not going to have another election. We just want Michel Martelly to be put as the second candidate and to have a second round. You know, joke, joke, joke. So when this stuff happens in Bolivia, in in Venezuela as well, it's the same little game of the U.S. imposing it, using the Organization of American States to impose its will. And, of course, it is for profit. It is to steal the resources of Haiti, to have someone like Martelly who will give, you know, a kind of mining contract to VCS mining with Hillary's brother, Hillary Clinton's brother on the board, where ninety seven point five percent goes to them and two dollars and two point five percent goes to Haiti. And it's the same thing with the oil in Venezuela. You know, they want it. They want it and, you know, they don't want to pay anything for it. And in Bolivia the lithium The lithium, you know, that's in the laptop, that's in front of me right now, the battery. In the phone, the cell phone that I'm talking on, the battery is lithium. And the electric cars they want to have for the future, it's the lithium, you know, that will make this battery last. And we understand that Evo Morales, the president, legitimate president of Bolivia, said 70% of the lithium is in Bolivia. And they cannot, they cannot, they will not accept that a government that is working on behalf of its people, that is not giving them you know, these deals where 18% goes to the government and 82% goes to the multinationals. They will do anything to not agree to that. So we know that it's not about fraud in election. It's not about the referendum in Venezuela, in Bolivia. It's not about any of that. It's about the resources of these countries that the U.S. considers as their reserve, that they can just put their hand in and take as they wish. And it's about, you cannot have a government that is not willing to do whatever the United States says, and be it Obama, be it Clinton, be it Bush, be it Trump, whatever differences there are between these characters, it's the same
1: policy, everything for us and nothing for the rest of the world. And Haitians have learned that not only is the OAS not to be trusted as an arbiter of anything, but the United Nations neither.
2: Absolutely. You know, the United Nations is really an anti-democratic organization. And what we always say is that nothing good can come out of the United Nations. You know, when they have these silly UNICEF, These projects that, you know, like they're defending the rights of women, they're defending the rights of children, it's a sham. It's a sham to cover what they did in the Congo with Lumumba and what they're continuing to do everywhere else in the world today. It's like every country in the General Assembly can vote to end sanctions on Cuba, but you know, it's it's going to happen and nobody is going to do anything. And it's, it's impunity, even when these countries, they go against a vote in their own security council. It's theirs. It's not. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the masses of the people or even these puppet regimes around the world. Even when they decide against something. The United States, you know, these countries, they will do it anyway. This is why the the United Nations, they cannot do anything to save the Palestinians. They cannot do, they will not do anything to end poverty anywhere because they feed on it. And the, when you hear about these UN uh, missions like the mini that happened in Haiti, peacekeeping, this is all garbage to cover pillage and plunder. To cover the fact that, you know, in the case of Haiti, with the minister in 2004, it was clear to the U.S. that if were they to have Marines, U.S. soldiers in Haiti, it would cost them something like 10 times what it costs to have a poor Nepali soldier, poor Pakistani soldier doing the work of the United States, the bidding of the United States for like one-tenth the salary of a U.S. soldier or whatever benefit would come to a U.S. soldier that they don't really have to give to a soldier from, I don't know, from Brazil. And so this is the point of these peacekeeping missions of the U.N. pretending that they're doing something on behalf of the world's people, when in reality, everybody, you don't need glasses to see that the U.N. is a tool of oppression for people around the world.
1: How long do you think the president in Haiti can hold on against this almost universal opposition?
2: (laughs) As long as it's not costing the U.S. and, you know, these other countries, white colonial core group countries, to keep him in power. I'll give you this is kind of a joke, you know. After this French couple was killed in Haiti, And I saw an article where an unnamed diplomat from France in Haiti made a statement that the U.S. was the only one holding on to Jovenel Moïse, the puppet president, you know, in power in Haiti, that if it were not for the U.S. support, he would be gone already. But what I'm saying is that we are in struggle. Like when at Komokoda, when we started protesting outside the consulate in New York in April of 2018, we, w- we didn't know that in December of 2019, we would still be protesting there every week. So we cannot put a date or time limit. We just know that we are in struggle. We know that in Haiti, we are in a better position today than we were a year ago, because today the country is on fire. Today the country is ungovernable, and contrary to what some people might think, that you know they cannot go for vacation or they cannot go to you know to visit the citadel, they cannot go to a family member's wedding or a family member's funeral. This is a good thing when people are in struggle because when we were going from here to visit family, to go to the Citadel, to enjoy the sun after, you know, the winter over here, it meant that the people were not fighting against the reality of their lives. So when the people are in the streets fighting, they are organizing. It is a beautiful thing. And that is what gives hope. We don't know where it will be next week or two weeks from now or even two years from now. Because what we say is that our ancestors, we know that the ceremony of buakaima which launched this final phase of our victory, it happened in August of 1791. And victory, as a matter of fact, was today, I should say, today, the 29th of November, because uh, the day I'm talking to Glenn here, because, you know, Glenn, the Battle of Etienne was on the 18th of November. And when Rochambeau, the French general, you know, he surrendered, he asked Dessalines for 10 days to vacate. And Dessalines was (laughs) kind enough (laughs) to give him 10 days to get out. So it is on the 11th day, the 29th of November, that the first declaration of our independence, of our owning this land happened in Fort Liberté. It was back then called Fort Dauphin. And so today is a, is a big day. But the battle didn't start, and this is the point I want to make. Our ancestors did not start fighting in 1791. We always want to point out that the fight started on the continent when the first of our ancestors was kidnapped. You see, people fought against them on the slave ships. People fought throughout the way. And when they landed here, people fought throughout. You know, you had the Maroons, you know, you had every kind of struggle that happened every inch of the way. And so it's the same thing that we are doing now, that it is a long struggle. We are are not, this is not a sprint. You know, we are not thinking that, you know, we're going to snap our finger or, you know, we're going to have a couple of demonstrations and we're going to defeat these people who have run the world for thousands of years. No, it, it doesn't happen like that. It's a protracted struggle is what I want to say. Well, yesterday we had a full bus to Plymouth, Glenn. Yeah, like you said, Glenn, eh, today is the day after the U.S. holiday of Thanksgiving. But in our community, yesterday was the 12th year that we organized a bus from the Haitian community in Brooklyn to bring our solidarity to the Native American in Plymouth, Massachusetts, to the United American Indians of New England, who since it was their 50th year, because since 1970 they've been organizing what they call a National Day of Mourning on the Day of Thanksgiving. And we are so happy that we had a full bus. It was uh, raining up there, it was cold, but, uh, and we are across the ocean on Cold Hill At Plymouth Rock, you know, the Plymouth Pebble, the native family call it. But it was a very strong day, and yeah, I mean, I dare say there were like thousands of people there, more people than I've seen in a while, and it's a wonderful thing that a lot of people are turning away from the oppression of their ancestors, because a lot of uh, young white people were there, older white people were there, and you had blacks, you had people from South America, and the day, of course, it's always dedicated to brother Leonard Peltier in their dungeon since 1977. And it was also dedicated to the people of Bolivia, where Evo Morales was the first indigenous head of state there. So the struggle is won. And this is the message that we talked about on the bus to get there and throughout the day. So the struggle is won. And we know we will win. We know that The enemy, you know, they have these things, trinkets in their hands to slow us down, you know, but we we are certain of victory.
0: That was Daoud Andre of the Committee to Mobilize Against Dictatorship in Haiti, speaking from Brooklyn,
1: New York. The U.S. global policy of overthrowing governments that don't do Washington's bidding has had successes and failures recently. We spoke with Dr. Gerald Horn, the renowned historian and amazingly prolific author. Well, first of all, internationally. It's apparent
3: that despite the setback in Bolivia, for example, and the continuing destabilization of Venezuela and also the election in Uruguay, which brought a conservative to power. Contrastingly, there was the freedom of Lula in Brazil and the unrest in Colombia, which is uh, really uh, in motion as we speak. Also, I would point to the role of France, which As you may know, in a recent interview with The Economy, President Macron referred to NATO as brain dead. Of course, the 45th U.S. president is headed to a NATO meeting in a day or two. Uh, Mr. Macron just got back from China. Recall that before the G7 meeting, he had a sit down with President Putin, which of course did not go down very well in certain circles in Washington. And that is a relationship that's going to have to be watched very carefully. Now, with regard to the United States, what I find intriguing in some ways is the response to the 1619 Project of the New York Times. Did you see that in August? Sure. Yeah. So what's interesting, it's being attacked by left, right, and the center in the Euro-American community. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Worldwide Socialist website, you'll find Interviews with Ivy League historians like Horton Wood and James McPherson who excoriate this project. Of course, the conservatives in the National Review have done the same. And actually, in the context of the McPherson interviews, there was a reprimand of some of my work, believe it or not. And this is an intriguing development because what it suggests is that there are Black middle class folks who refuse to accept the creation myth of the United States of America. And I think that in no small measure, they're driven by the rise of Trumpism and the fact that there's all of this talk about fascism in the air, as represented in Madeleine Albright's book, as represented in the trafficking and fascist ideas by Stephen Miller, uh, Mr. Trump's chief aide on immigration. Whereas these historians, they, they pride themselves on being sort of unaware of what's going on in the world today. I mean, I analogize them to patients who go to a doctor and the doctor takes a medical history, which is what doctors usually do, and then the doctor tosses it in the wastebasket. <laughs> I mean, that's that's how these historians do that with regard to the present, and because they do that with regard to the present they get locked into to old ideas. I mean, for example, McPherson in his interview acknowledges freely that he was influenced by the anti-Jim Crow movement of the 1960s. But like, I guess he's unaware of Trumpism and the fact that people were trying to understand how and why it is that the press is reporting that there is a strong likelihood that Mr. Trump will be reelected in November 2020. And that obviously, I'm not even sure if he's aware of that those kinds of reports, because as I said, these historians, they pride themselves on being sort of ignorant of the present. And in some ways, it reminds, it's an analog to the whole end of history debate. recall Francis Fukuyama after the fall of Berlin Wall, he talked about the end of history, capital has won, no more debate, there is no alternative. So now some of the historians are really, they're really talking about the end of historiography, that is to say, you cannot advance new interpretations of U.S. reality that are more in sync with the current moment, and you have to sort of parrot these old ideas. And in fact, there's a kind of originalism, too. Uh, recall that in the U.S. Supreme Court, they have this idea of being locked into the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution is enunciated by the certain framers in the late 18th century. Of course, uh, they, they don't take that point of view with regard to the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, for example.
1: Well, what you sound like you're saying, Doctor, is that establishment historians are buckling down to the narrative that they feel is under assault. And at these Black writers that you referred to, they are abandoning, attacking, rejecting the creation myth of the United States. And in if you reject the creation myth, then you reject American exceptionalism in the present and all the imperial prerogatives that go along with it. I couldn't have said it better myself. And let me say that it, it's not just a
3: 1619 project. It's Ishmael Reed, perhaps the most prolific a Black intellectual of this era, who did this response piece to Hamilton, the glorification of Alexander Hamilton that has taken the country by storm. I think of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and her Indigenous People's History of the United States of America, which also tries to erode the creation myth. But what what I was about to say is that there's a kind of liberal originalism too. I mean, believe it or not, I was once rebuked by a leading Palestinian intellectual. I think he's Palestinian-American, in fact, because I used terms like settler colonialism to describe the United States and then try to draw a parallel with historic Palestine. And his rebuke was, well, since Frederick Douglass and Harry Tupman didn't use terms like settler colonialism, it's inappropriate for me to do so. So once again, there's an attempt to sort of lock us in to old ideas, and there's no room left for innovation or creativity to adapt to the current moment. And I would say that
1: down that path lies disaster. You wrote very recently a huge book, much of which I've actually read, White Supremacy Confronted, and it tells the story, mostly in the 60s and 70s, of the confrontation with white supremacy in South Africa and Portuguese rule in Africa. And there's a lot of material on the organizing that went on here among. African Americans in confronting that supremacy. But today in Africa, much of the confrontation is characterized as between the United States and China in Africa. Is that the right way to look at it? Well, I, I think that that's an inadequate way of looking at it. I do
3: think that looking at U.S. objection to China's role in Africa and be informative, because obviously there's a lot of hysteria. Re- returning to France, I find it curious that many analysts do not look at France as a vampire-like role in Africa, sucking the blood out of numerous African countries. And I also find it curious that many African nations do not seem to have as much objection to China's role as some folks here in North America do. In Africa itself, it's felt that there needs to be a counterweight to the North Atlantic powers, and they feel that China helps to play that role, as does Russia too, for example. You might have seen the meeting in Sochi just a few weeks ago with a number of African heads of state and uh, leaders with regard to African development. And of course, both India and Turkey also are playing major roles in Africa. Now, I would particularly point to the role of Turkey in predominantly Muslim countries, such as Somalia, for example. So, once
1: again, looking at Africa through the US China lens can be informative, but it's inadequate. And to return to the Americas, you commented on the unrest in Colombia, which is different. Colombia's been in unrest for two generations, but these were huge demonstrations among the urban classes in Bogota and in Chile. That population has come awake and is demanding some kind of change of regime, certainly a change in the Constitution.
3: Well, you are correct, and it's quite heartening to see the thousands, tens of thousands, rallying in the streets of Santiago de Chile to put pressure on the big leader, Mr. Piñera. And Chile, I think, is instructive for many reasons. What I mean is, I recall after Salvador Allende was overthrown on September 11, 1973, you had many progressive forces in Chile who could not believe that fascism was descending. They had convinced themselves that their country had sturdy democratic traditions that could not so easily be overturned. In some ways, I mentioned that because it reminds me of the United States, where you've had a lot of loose talk about sturdy democratic traditions, despite the fact that those democratic traditions during the nation's 250-year history has rarely applied to the population of African descent. The indigenous population only became U.S. citizens in 1924 during the lifetime of some who may be hearing my voice uh, as I speak. And so I think that Chile is a cautionary tale historically. With regard to Colombia, I think that President Duque has overreached. He got too wrapped up in trying to destabilize neighboring Venezuela. And now the worm has turned the worm is turned. What I mean by that is that you've had many Venezuelan refugees lured across the border to Colombia, and arguably they put pressure on the entire economy. At the same time, there are at least rumors that the Maduro regime of Caracas is not sitting on its hands, while Duque and U.S. imperialism are trying to destabilize this regime. And there are Suggestions that the Maduro regime has close ties uh, to progressive forces in Colombia. And of course, as you well know, uh, Colombia has a long history of unrest going back to la violencia of the late 1940s. Uh, You might recall that a a young Fidel Castro was in Colombia as those bloody decades were being inaugurated then. And you still have these powerful uh, armed forces, Of the left, in Colombia, the peace talks have not eventuated in a way that was pleasing to either side, certainly not pleasing to the right. And so it seems to me Colombia, at least the regime of Mr. Duque, is really skating on thin ice as we speak.
1: Now, some folks like to say that President Trump has contributed a lot to the destabilization of U.S. power in the world. And if that's true, some of us say that's a good thing. But what's your assessment of Trump's effect on the powers of U.S. imperialism?
3: Well, I think it represents a split in the U.S. ruling class. With regard to Mr. Trump, and not necessarily with regard to his administration. Apparently, there is a decision to do a reverse Kissinger. Recall that uh, some decades ago, Henry Kissinger was able to work out an entente with China in the early 1970s on an anti Soviet basis. Mr. Kissinger, uh, still alive at the age of 90, in his, in his mid 90s, I should say, gave an interview with the Financial Times of London some months ago where he suggested that what Mr. Trump might be doing is trying to win over Russia against China. If that's the case, it's not working very well, given the frequent meetings between President Xi and President Putin. And the Democrats, it seems, want to unite with the European Union and confront Russia and China simultaneously, with an accent on Russia. And I think that that speaks to uh, all of the hubbub in Washington about impeachment and the Mueller report, et cetera. But it does not seem to be working out very well for either side. And I think that I just texted a friend suggesting that some of our friends on the left have lost touch with reality with regard to pushing impeachment, I remember not so long ago, we were being told that once this impeachment process got underway, it would work out like the impeachment process against Richard Nixon uh, some decades ago, That there'd be a stampede away from Mr. Trump. And that's apparently not taking place. And so therefore, the Democrats began to talk about, well, let's not use the term quid pro quo, let's use the term bribery and, and extortion as if a linguistic change would change the correlation of forces. I don't think that they recognize that for a good deal of the Trump base, Mr. Trump is doing what they want. They feel that let's take the one percent. They're very happy with these tax cuts of December two thousand seventeen. The fact that the Michael Bloomberg, the Bigonaire, former mayor of New York City, is into the race shows unease with the wealth tax put forward by Elizabeth Warren and some of the other proposals put forward by Bernie Sanders. And it's apparent as well that the foot soldiers of the Trump base are happy with the judicial appointments, which they feel will curb women's rights and help to bolster a patriarchy and will help to erode affirmative action, help to He wrote the Voting Rights Act further of 1965. And so they're standing by their man. And so I think that many of the Democrats and their liberal friends, I guess they just didn't do an analysis of the forces or they had an unrealistic estimate of the forces. And so now with regard to the trial coming up, I assume that the Democrats are going to vote in the House to impeach him. Then there'll be a trial in the Senate. And it's apparent that they're going to place Joe Biden, the vice president, and his corrupt son, Hunter Biden, on trial. The Republicans under Mitch McConnell, I assume, will be able to subpoena Hunter Biden, uh, who has a lot of skeletons in his closet. And uh, I would say that some of Mr. Joseph Biden's actions when he was the point man during the Obama years on Ukraine were questionable at best, given the fact that his son was under a $50,000 a month retainer from a Ukrainian energy company. And in any case, it seems that what's at play with regard to Ukraine, in part, is who's going to be in the vanguard of looting this Eastern European country? Will it be Democrats like Hunter Biden and his comrades, uh, some of whom were close to former Secretary of State John Kerry? Or will it be the comrades of outgoing Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Rick the Herodic Perry, former governor of Texas, who has been very influential in making sure that his comrades get contracts from Ukraine, or Rudy Giuliani, the disgraced uh, former mayor of New York City, who's playing a very curious role
1: there, both legally and financially. Yes, Ukraine certainly is a two-edged sword that cuts seemingly equally at both parties, and at the same time is a subject that Lots of Americans don't care about it all. Well, I think that, once again, the Trump base is standing by
3: their man, because they're not necessarily dissatisfied with his policies. I just read the book by Anonymous, quote-unquote, a warning. And then recall that this is the so-called senior Trump administration official who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times last year talking about how he was leading a kind of resistance from the White House, or she, as the case may be, because quite frankly, to me, it's possible that anonymous could be Kellyanne Conway, whose husband, George Conway, as you know, is a staunch and stern critic of Mr. Trump. But but in any case, one of the points that's made is that Stephen Miller, the Duke University graduate, who's the lead man on immigration, and who traffics and fascist ideas, he says that Mr. Trump does a lot of outrageous things to distract the public and the press to make it easier for initiatives that they would like to see less attention to uh, pass through silently in the night. Now, that's one of the few coherent explanations I've heard of Mr. Trump's annex, but I think there might be something to that.
1: So there may be methods to Trump's madness, but his madness is a distraction anyway. Oh, sure. Now, now to return to your question as to whether or not uh,
3: Mr. Trump is destabilizing U.S. imperialism. Well, if you look at his China policy, that's supported on a bipartisan in a bi- bipartisan fashion. That is to say that minority leaders such as Chuck Schumer, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in some ways are more hawkish on China than um, Mr. Trump is. And so once again, though, I don't think that either party has really thought through the consequences of decoupling the number one and number two economies or the consequences of supporting these demonstrations in Hong Kong that have featured Molotov cocktails being thrown at police and campuses occupied and trashed. Of course, if China were to support a similar uprising at City College of New York and Harlem, all hell would break loose. We also saw Senator Ted Cruz of Texas join the demonstrators dressed fashionably in all black, as has been the case for Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who is quite young and supposedly is angling to run in 2024, assuming that Mr. Trump wins or loses. He's getting up a presidential race in the Wall Street Journal just the other day, he staked his claim to being more hawkish on China than even Mr. Trump or the Democrats. But once again, I'm not sure if they thought this through to note or to repeat. I'm not sure if France is on board with regard to this. Mr. Macron, as noted, was just in China. So once again, I'm not sure if all of these initiatives are receiving the kind of ventilation and scrutiny they deserve and it's not just mr trump who might be destabilizing u.s imperialism i think that in some ways that kind of descriptor could be applied to various personalities and wings of the u.s
1: ruling class that was author and historian dr gerald horn speaking from the university of houston
0: chicago has become the national focus of the struggle for community control of the police Last month, 800 activists gathered at the Chicago Teachers' Union Hall for an historic conference to refound the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. The alliance was originally founded in 1973, but was later largely disbanded. However, the Chicago chapter held on. Under the leadership of veteran organizer Frank Chapman. Mr. Chapman presided over the recent refounding of the Alliance, and he's a happy man.
4: I was definitely very happy. I haven't been happy in about 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> this was a powerful conference, indicative of the fact that there's a powerful movement building up in our country for community control of the police.
1: Well, you spoke in terms of this being a kind of united front, and it looked to an observer like a fighting united front.
4: Yeah, it is a fighting united front because
1: 99.9% of all of
4: the people who, was in, who were in the room are activists. You know, we didn't have too many uh, non-activist people in the room. Even the people who were academics that were in the room were activists engaged in some kind of organized struggle somewhere in this country. And they came from 20 different states and 148 different cities. And so uh, a lot of them came from, came from important pockets of resistance like Baltimore, Ferguson, St. Louis, New York. And they're not ready to fight. They are fighting. And uh, they stay ready. So it's going to be a, uh, a tremendous organization in terms of our fight back against police tyranny in in this country.
1: And they looked quite young compared to lots of organizations these days and overwhelmingly non-white
4: yes that's very important very important because the youth are the ones who will take us forward into tomorrow and in terms of this movement uh, it has to be a black-led left-led movement i don't see it being any other way because the most impacted people in this country in terms of police tyranny police crimes police murder mass incarceration is the black population, black people. And, that, and that's one of the vestiges of the legacy of slavery. So we have to have it that way. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Because the, it's been historically proven that the fight for democracy in the United States of North America has to be carried forward by black people, the most oppressed people in this land.
1: And you seem to be giving a warning against sectarianism. But there didn't seem to be any kind of the usual bickering we hear between various factions.
4: Yeah, you know, we, what we've learned from history, and it's mostly the history in other countries, not the
1: United States.
4: But what we have learned is is that to have a united front, you have to not have that ideological bickering that sectarianism because uh, that will undermine the unity of the front. United front, as they used to say in South Africa, with the united democratic front. It's the unity, unity of action, not unity of ideas. We're going to have different ideological persuasions, you know, people in different levels in terms of the, the broad political spectrum, but we can all unite against racism. You know, we, can, we can all unite against the racism and political repression that has plagued in our country like a disease. We can all unite against that, and we must unite against it in order to stop it and overturn it.
1: There were many expressions of solidarity in the fight against U.S. imperialism, but the main focus of the conference, uh, the main concentration of energies in terms of the various organizations uh, seems to be against the police here in the U.S. Yes, because... Two things
4: on that. One is that the repression here in the United States is related to repression around the world because the U.S. government is an imperialist government and is engaged in the repression around the world as they are right now as we speak in Venezuela, you know, and in Bolivia and in the Philippines. So we make that obvious connection. But at the same time, we are focused on dealing with repression here at home and the cutting edge of that repression on the home front, is the police, no doubt about it. And the police on, on all levels. I'm talking about local police, state police, FBI, CIA, you know, all the police, ICE with, the, with the immigration, you know. You know, the United States is trying to morph into a police state. In the African-American community, you already have that. The behavior of the police in the African-American community and, and, and in Mexican-American communities, the Puerto Rican communities, is the behavior of, of the police in the police state. So we we are experiencing it firsthand.
1: The co-chair of the Chicago Alliance, I believe, remarked that there might not have been this conference, this creation of this fighting United Front national organization, if there hadn't been such substantial victories in Chicago.
4: I believe that. That's very, very true. And we know what those substantial victories are now. They begin to come in a wave after the murder of Laquan McDonald, with the resignation of the superintendent of police, with the kicking out of office of that terrible state prosecutor, uh, Anita Alvarez, and finally with the mayor himself, politically resigning from office. I I call it a political resignation because he didn't rerun. Then what happened during the elections also is a testament to what, what she said, and that is during the elections, we clearly brought CPAC into the political arena in a very forceful manner. And we now have forty percent of the city council that is supporting our legislation to get an all elected all civilian police accountability council. So yeah, I think that set the stage for what we had this past weekend and that is the emergence of, of the reemergence of the alliance as a national organization.
1: And you made it clear before these elections in which you made such strides in getting so many folks on the city council who will support CPAC that just because you were putting thousands of activists into the electoral process didn't mean that the movement was going entirely electoral.
4: No, I think that would be a fatal flaw. The movement can't go entirely electoral. We have to have the movement to push the issue, not the politician. That's been our big mistake in the past. There's the tendency to push politicians instead of pushing the issue. And of course, as you can see uh, with the election uh, season coming up, that's still a, a very dominant tendency among the people. And we have to change that. If we're going to change the system, we have to push the issue, not the politician. Because the politicians, they make promises. They're subject to all different kinds of levels of corruption. And let's be quite frank. You know, we have the best elections money can buy. The elections are influenced and controlled in large part by corporate America, by the capitalist ruling class. So we can't fight them by joining them. Of course, some people think that way. We have to fight them by fighting them. And our best weapon against them is organizing the people to fight them, to push the issue. Push the issue not the politician.
1: Now, in terms of community control of police, clearly Chicago is way ahead of all the other localities in terms of being within sight of establishing the most advanced and comprehensive plan for community control of police in the country. In many of the cities that the constituent organizations of the new refounded alliance come from. There is no such movement on the ground yet, and there are other formulas for community control of police that were put forward at the conference, notably by people from Washington, D.C.
4: Well, you know, I've talked to those comrades, and uh, our position is this. It's good that Chicago is out front, All of those things that you said are very good, but also there's some dangers in uneven development. It would be better if more cities, more people were engaged in the fight for community control of the police. And we got 148 cities who were represented here. So our goal is to get all 148 of them involved. But now in doing that, again, you know, we have to fight against some sectarian notions that everybody has to do it exactly the way that we're doing it. Everybody don't have to do it exactly the way that we're doing it. But everybody should take note of what we're doing. And also everybody should draw the appropriate lessons. The main thing is the political objective of what we're doing. And that is community control of the police. And that's what I said to the comrades out of, out of D.C. That jury pool selection process would not work in Chicago. Maybe it will work in D.C. I don't know. But they're on the ground fighting in D.C. And so we're prepared to take some leadership from them on that question, just like they're prepared to take some leadership from us. And so there has to be this, you know, this back and forth going on between us and the rest of the country in order for us to all get on the same page in terms of a strategy. And that strategy has to be community control of the police. You know, we don't need no more police review boards. We don't need no uh, oversight. You know, the worm investigating this tale. We don't need none of that. What we need is community control of the police, and that is decisively what we're talking about here in Chicago, that we have the power to say who polices our communities and how our communities are policed. That's the bottom
1: line. In terms of consolidating this new national alliance, impatient folks might get a little irritated at that schedule. You'll have a meeting in the spring with the aim of having a fully formed national alliance in the next year. Why so much time? Well,
4: we're talking about building a national organization, and we're talking about building it from the bottom up, not the top down. And if we're going to build it from the bottom up, then we have to give ourselves a chance to get rooted in those communities where we're going to be based. And right now, we don't have those roots. And so, our first thing, our first order of business is going to be to consolidate what we did at the conference, bring all those people back who became a part of the Continuations Committee to meet in the spring to lay out a concrete, massive plan to. Build this organization from the grassroots up, not from top leadership down.
1: And it's not too late for other organizations that weren't represented in Chicago last weekend to get on board. The
4: door is wide open. The more, the better.
0: That was Frank Chapman, executive director of the newly refounded National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, in chicago
1: supporters of mumia abu jamal the nation's best known political prisoner are gearing up for an important event in philadelphia on december 9th it's called youth rise up against empire marking 38 years of abu jamal's imprisonment during which time he's written a number of books Mumia's latest book is a trilogy titled Murder Incorporated that explores the history of U.S. imperial crimes. Abu Jamal says he was inspired by the work of the late Howard Zinn. Years before we worked together, my co-author Stephen Vittoria
5: and I talked about Howard Zinn and his masterpiece, The People's History of the United States. We both were admirers of Howard, and we loved his work, and perhaps especially his ideas of what was called history from below, or how regular people, average, everyday people, made important contributions to the nation's history by building movements for freedom, justice, and real human rights. Zen, who grew up in New York's tenements, was such a man himself. And he embraced humanistic working class ideas. As a young teacher in the Jim Crow South, he saw everyday people, like his students at Spelman College, get beaten and arrested for daring to demand the right to vote. These events taught Howard about history happening right before his eyes where he had a bird's-eye view of the civil rights movement in Georgia and beyond. These experiences inspired him and supercharged his reading, research, and writing of true U.S. history. And Howard inspired us, Stephen and I, to write our own history, Murder Incorporated, which we invite you to read so it can inspire you. For Murder Incorporated and my co-author, Stephen Vittoria, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal.
0: And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.